Good morning. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our study in the Rhythms of Grace in Luke 11. And if you were working through your personal worship this week, maybe you had a slight panic attack like me when you saw how long the passage is. And then maybe secondly, you had a slight panic attack when you saw what's contained inside the passage. And you said, why is this one passage? How does this fit together? Does it fit together? There's some weird demon stuff in here. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe Tom took a passage, put a bunch of stuff together, and said, here, Carter, see what happens. Maybe. No, he, he planned it out. It goes together. And I think the, one of the things when we look at this passage on the surface, it looks like two separate units, two separate stories. Jesus and the crowd performing an exorcism, and the crowd questions him. And then Jesus at dinner with the Pharisees doing what we see Jesus do time and time again, which is rebuking them. But when we look a little bit deeper, when we dive a little bit below the surface and slow down as we read, we realize this is really one story because it happens in one day. The Pharisee that invites Jesus to dinner is in the crowd. So all of this takes place in one day. And so what we can see is that Jesus is giving a message. He's teaching the crowd something that he then carries over into dinner with the Pharisees. And so we're going to journey through this passage together this morning and seek to discover what is that one thing that underpins this entire passage? What is the one thing that Jesus is teaching both the crowd and the Pharisees? And we're going to deal with some things that for many of us are uncomfortable. There may be things we don't ever think about, but we're going to see something beautiful and true as Jesus reveals it in his word. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't, you can check out the screen. We're going to be looking at Luke 11, beginning in verse 14, where it says this. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Bezalel, which is Satan, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So Jesus here is continuing this ministry of release, as it's called, the release of demons and demonic influences on people. And as he's doing this, as he's performing this exorcism, there's two questions that the crowd is asking. One, by which authority is Jesus claiming to be doing this? Because it certainly isn't from God, and most likely it's probably from Satan. He's probably some kind of demonic teacher. And then the other part of the crowd looks at Jesus and says, I mean... A demon removed? I don't know about that. Maybe the man was deaf, or maybe he wasn't deaf. Maybe he just never really talked with anybody, so everybody thought he was deaf. Or maybe something unexplainable happened, but it's definitely not demons being removed. I mean, come on. So if we're going to believe any of the stuff you're saying, Jesus, you're going to have to give us some more signs. We need more proof. We need evidence. We need to be able to see a little bit more. You can't just expect us to believe that you just removed demons from this guy. Do any of those positions resonate with you? When you look at Christianity, when you look at the Bible, when you look at Jesus, maybe you think to yourself, I mean, Jesus was an exceptional man, maybe the most exceptional man of all time, wise, merciful, just, kind, an example really to everyone, but God in the flesh, come on. Or maybe you think to God and you read the Bible and you say, God, if you want me to believe this, You're going to have to give me some kind of sign. You're going to have to show me something because to believe that this 2,000 year old and more book, that I'm just going to read it and believe it, I mean, 
Come on. And I want to give a quick note to those of us in the room that are Christians. I think it's really, really important that we slow down because we were all here. And many of us still have things that we struggle through. We all have been people that, are, that doubt and are skeptical. It is natural to human nature for us to be skeptical of these things. And what can happen very easily is that when we're in the church, we become socially conditioned to what the Bible contains and to the truth within. It loses its mystery. It loses its luster. It doesn't become as mind-blowing as it really is because here's what we believe. We believe in a God who created everything in the world. And he created Adam and Eve, man and woman. And he gave them one rule in the garden that was paradise. And they disobeyed. They listened to the tempter. They listened to Satan. And sin entered the world. And so sin entered the world. God enacted a rescue mission. And he focused his attention on one nation. One small, insignificant group of people. We call the Israelites. And he began to give them truth and prophets and teachers. And they began to do the same thing over and over and over again. They would repent, they would reject. They would repent, they would reject this cycle. And so Jesus comes. God sends Jesus himself in the flesh, and he's born to this poor Jewish family, Mary and Joseph. And they go around telling people that Joseph isn't the father, it's God, who through the Spirit impregnated Mary, who gave birth to a son, and his name is Jesus. And for really about 30 years, we don't know much about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he arrives onto the scene. He gets 12 guys together and he begins going around the region and he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's saying he's God in the flesh. He's doing miracles. He's casting out demons. And he gets enough people angry that they kill him, put him on a cross. And he says, this has to happen because I have to pay the penalty for the sin of those that would trust in me. And after he's killed, he'd put him in a tomb. And three days later, he's gone, resurrected. And his followers say that they've been spending time with him for 40 days after he rose, and that he then ascends into heaven and he tells everybody that I'm preparing a place for you. If you trust in me in faith, I have a, I have a place for you and I'm going to give you the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that's going to dwell and live inside you and direct and guide you through this life until you come and meet me. And here's the most miraculous thing. He says, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to follow eight rules. You don't have to follow five steps. Nothing. You actually can't do anything. That's why I had to do it. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is trust. All you have to do is hear, really hear, what I'm saying and keep it. You see, what we believe is miraculous. It is mind-blowing. It is faith in the miraculous. And most of us here were dragged by God's grace to faith. And we need to be very careful that those that are friends or family that are skeptical and have doubts, that we treat them with the same kind of grace and love that Jesus treats this skeptical crowd before him. Verse 17, it says this, But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Bezalel. And if I cast out demons by Bezalel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by God's finger that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him, 
and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, first off, your logic is faulty. To assume that I am in fact a deputy or an agent of Satan is to say that you're pinning Satan against himself. Who enacts civil war in their own domain? Who attacks their own house? That doesn't make any logical sense. And secondly, he's looking at the crowd and he's saying, you are very selective with your skepticism and your doubts. Because there are others that are casting out demons in my name and you don't question them. And if you look at yourself, if I look at myself, this is true, right? We're selective with our doubts. We doubt that which we're uncomfortable with or that which we're not able to reason in our limited capacity. You see, we we have this idea of how the puzzle should look and how the pieces should fit together. And when they don't meet expectation or when the picture that is created is uncomfortable, we seek to destroy the puzzle piece by piece, right? We aren't equally critical and skeptical. We are selective. For instance, you may read the Old Testament and you may read some stories in the Old Testament. And you may say, Whoa, what? Or you may look at the Old Testament concept of God and then the New Testament concept of God and you say, this cannot be the same God. There's no way. So you doubt. You're skeptical, but you don't doubt forgiveness because forgiveness feels right. Forgiveness feels good. But does it really make logical sense that a holy, merciful God should forgive a sinful person? Not really. You may doubt Christianity, the Bible, and the claims of Jesus because they're too fantastical, they're too far-fetched, they're too mysterious, and you can't wrap your mind around it. But you believe that we're here because of a Big Bang explosion that you also can't wrap your mind around. You doubt the authenticity of the Bible, but you don't doubt the authenticity of Julius Caesar or Plato's Republic, though we have far less manuscripts of them. You doubt that there's an afterlife, but you believe there's a spiritual realm. You see, we're very selective, right, with the things that we doubt. And the only honest thing to do is to doubt everything. And let me give you a little warning. Don't do that because you'll become insane. Because when you doubt everything, you have to doubt your doubts, right? Don't do that. It just hurts your head. So, Jesus is looking at the crowd and he's saying, you're very, very selective with your doubts. First off, your logic is faulty. Secondly, you're only doubting me because you're uncomfortable with me. And because you're not able in your limited capacity to reason. And what I'm trying to explain to you is that the kingdom of God is here. And that which I say and that which I do is evidence that it is here and it is here in power. And he continues to break down their logic And then he gives us this, and you know what I'm about to read if you did your personal worship. In verse 24, it says, when the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What in the world? Anybody else think that? You're going to your personal worship. Maybe you thought this. This is weird. Let's just keep going. Right? Or maybe you thought, okay, this is real bizarre. Someone needs to explain this because what? How did he get here? 
Or maybe you thought there's no way in the world they talk about this on Sunday. Nope, no way. Well, we're going to talk about it. So Jesus here is rehearsing common views towards the demonic. Four views. One, that demons exist in independent existence. That they live and they dwell and they roam in desert places. It says waterless places. That demons prefer, they're seeking to indwell in humans. And that a human can be captured or captivated by multiple demons. And right now your skeptical radar is going off and you're like, where in the world are we going with this? Right? Because your concept of a demon is a red-headed horn creature that is flying around and taking over people and making their heads spin around and all these different things, right? Well, I want to change the language a bit, but keep the truth. Demon not being the red-headed horn creature, but being a spiritual force, as it says here, an unclean spirit, a spirit of wickedness, something, a spirit that is leading and influencing people towards destruction, away from God. Here are some views towards this concept of the demonic Destructive forces exist all around us. Destructive forces, they roam and they live in desolate places, meaning places with very little life or no life at all. Their mission is simple. To lure and influence humans towards destruction and away from God. And humans are capable of being influenced by multiple destructive forces. Does that sound any better? Maybe. Maybe not. So I want to take this concept and try to marry it with our Western minds a bit. Is it the spirit of God or the spirit of Satan? Or we could rephrase it and say, is it a spirit of goodness and righteousness that comes from God? Or a spirit of evil and wickedness that comes from Satan that leads and influences people to commit affairs, watch pornography, embezzle money, murder, Is it the spirit of God or the spirit of Satan that leads people and influences people to abuse young girls and boys, to traffic humans as sex slaves, to rape, to overdose, to decapitate people, to force women and girls to fight? Is it the spirit of God or the spirit of Satan that leads people to look at the skin color of another as inferior, to crash a plane, blow up a building, devalue human life in the womb, regard sex as trivial, and view one's bank account as the marker of success? Is it the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Satan that leads and influences people to gossip, slander those that are different, hold grudges, doubt God, be consumed by pride and lust? So I think when we rephrase it a bit, we realize that this is a relatable concept because destructive forces exist all around us that are looking to influence and lead us towards a destructive end because human nature is prone towards this, right? We're prone to evil. We don't have to look very far inside of our own head to realize that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 puts it well. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that being Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
You see, though, for those of us in Christ, we have been released, there is a war raging inside of us and around us, seeking. There are forces, there are influences, there are things that are seeking to influence us towards destruction, towards decay. Romans 7 puts it well. Paul says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, Paul is clearly showing, listen, Yes, we are fallen, we are sinful, and I have been released, and in my inner being, I dwell in desire to live and be directed towards God. But there's a war raging because there are influences and things that are lying close at hand and seeking to pull me away from the vision I know I should have and lead me towards darkness. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Meaning Satan disguises himself to look good, to feel right, to seem harmless. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. It is harmful. It is destructive. So clearly we see that there is some influence. There is something out there, right? Beyond the physical realm that is leading us to make decisions with our physical body and with our mind that is towards evil, towards wickedness, towards sin, to destruction, distancing ourselves from God. And I think the problem is, is that when we think about this, it feels weird and it feels foreign because we have this concept of demon possession that isn't correct. We think of demon possession as we see in the movies, as some spirit coming over and, you know, making your head turn around and making you do all these weird things. And though sometimes there is possession in very, very extreme cases, it's not the majority. You see, the question that we ask ourselves is, as a Christian, can you be possessed by a demon? Well, it depends on what you mean by possession. If by possession you mean can a demon or a spirit take over you and make you do what it wants you to do and take you captive? Well, the answer is clearly no. Because scripture tells us that you have, sin has no dominion over you, that Satan has no dominion over you. And here Jesus says, you have a strong man inside of you, guarding you, but one stronger has come and cast him out. So no, but if by possession you mean, can you be influenced and drawn and captured and captivated to things that are evil, sinful, leading to destruction, what? If you're like me, you don't have to think very long to know that that's the case. You see, Jesus here is talking about all these demonic things and explaining this to the crowd because he's concerned for their spiritual indifference. He's not just concerned about their faulty logic. He's concerned that they're walking down a path towards destruction and they don't even realize it because it looks like an angel of light. And so he tells them this, In verse 24, it says, And he said these things, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
Here it is. Here's the underpinning. Here's the focus of the passage. Jesus shares all these things to the crowd. And this woman in her exuberance and her excitement gets up and says, essentially, blessed is Mary because she produced you and raised you. And we know Mary is blessed, but she's never blessed because of what she does. She's blessed because of what she believes. And Jesus here takes this exuberance and he redirects it. And he says, but rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And he's going to continue to develop the underpinning of this passage, which is this. Your vision is transformed by what you hear. When you really hear the word of God, it redirects your vision. It gives you your focus and your gaze and your ambition and your life is running towards something completely different than it was before when you really hear what God's word says. So he continues with this earth shattering truth to the crowd. And he says, when the crowds were increasing in verse 29, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. Jesus is the sign. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus is saying, listen, the Ninevites and the queen of the south, they were foreigners. They didn't have the same opportunity that you have to hear the word of God and to be shown good news and to week in, week out, hear it preached and to have the opportunity to read. They didn't have that. They came from far off. And when they heard the word of God, it transformed them. They repented, they believed, and their vision was now focused on something different. And he continues in verse 33, and he says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. He says, listen, no one ever lights a lamp, lights a candle in a dark room, and then says, let's cover it and put it out. When you light a lamp, the goal is to dispel the darkness. There is either darkness or there is light. There is no middle ground because what light does is it casts out darkness. And he's looking at the crowd and he's saying, where are you focused? What is your eye directed towards? Because it will give an indication on whether or not you really heard what I've said. It is either light or it is darkness. There is no middle ground. And he looks at the crowd and I love this. He says, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful that you don't assume that it's light, when in fact it may be darkness. Look at your vision. It will tell you if you've really heard. And this seems like the natural point for Jesus to kind of drop the mic and walk off, you know? But he doesn't. And Luke continues the story here, and it seems like he shouldn't. It seems like it should be over. But he carries it into the night. 
he goes to dinner with the Pharisees, and he goes to dinner with those that assume to be following the light. Those that assume that they're good, they're safe because they're moral. They have rules and they follow them pretty well, very well. Definitely better than the crowd and the culture. So Jesus is with them in verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Jesus really takes the gloves off, right? He looks at the crowd and he deals deals in general. He says, you skeptical crowd, let me explain to you how your logic is faulty. Let me try to show you that your vision is off. Let me try to explain to you that you've allowed culture to lead you away from me. And then he looks at the Pharisees And he gets personal. He looks at the individual. He says, you Pharisees, inside you is greed and wickedness. You fools, you ought to have done. You are like unmarked graves. Because see, their their offense is more serious. They're not only skeptical of Jesus. They are leading people to darkness and claiming that it's light. They are going around telling people how they're going to live and how God wants them to live. And if they don't do this, this, and this, well, then they're not with God. And in fact, they're leading them to darkness. And Jesus is looking at both, and he's saying, you need the same message. Whether you're skeptical or whether you're religious, you need to hear this. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. One of my favorite lyrics of all time is by a band called Manchester Orchestra. And it's going to get real deep, so get ready. I want to read it. I want you to to take this in. Here's what they say. If seeing is believing, then believe we have lost our eyes. Told you it's deep. I'm going to read it again. If seeing is believing, then believe we've lost our eyes. I think what they're saying is, if you live in such a way that everything you see is the only thing that's true, you might as well believe that you don't have any eyes because you're missing it. There's something beyond the physical. There's something out there. And both the skeptic and the religious need to hear this because they're both seeking after the same thing, though they're ruled by different things. You see, the skeptic wants to feel secure in life because they're convinced that Jesus is in God. They're convinced that probably there isn't a God. He's at least not the one that we see in the Bible. And so they can live how they want. And the religious do the same thing on the opposite side. They say, we want to craft a life the way that we want it to look. We want to make God look how we want. And we want to feel safe and secure because we're doing A, B, C, D, E, and F, G. They both want to control their concept of God to suit their fancy. They both want to create God in their own image. 
They're both arrogant. They're both selfish. They're both judgmental. They're both, you could say, are being possessed by a demonic influence, by destructive forces. They're both missing Jesus, and they're both missing the gospel. And our culture has done two things with the skeptic and the religious. We have reacted to the ambiguousness of skepticism, and we've given spirituality. Maybe a phrase you would hear like this, I hate Christianity, but I love spirituality. You see, spirituality is this thing that this belief that you're tapping into something out there, something out there that has the power to transform you and enable you to grow and become a better person. But at its root and at the core, the way our culture speaks of it, it's, it's not Jesus. That energy isn't Jesus or the God of the Bible or really probably any concept of God. It's just something out there that's important. The problem is with that, is if there's no concept of God, and if there's no God that revealed himself, then who is it that you're tapping into? Because if you follow spirituality down the rabbit hole, you arrive at you being God. Because who created the practices and the rituals by which you tap into the spiritual? You did. So it falls apart there. And the other thing, our culture has reacted to the oppressive nature of religion. Um, We're going to be honest, the way that the church has been that in some occasions, and sometimes can continue to be. And we have a phrase that maybe you've heard that goes like this. I hate religion, but I love Jesus. You heard that? Here's the problem. You know of God and you fall in love with God because you've read his word that's established a religion. Jesus himself gave the church. Jesus himself said that there are things in life, there are laws that are good and good for you to follow. The problem is we've put them in the wrong order, right? We put them ahead of Jesus in the gospel, like the religious leaders here have done. You see, religion is to Jesus as a ring is to marriage. In marriage, the most important thing is the union, the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. That's what matters. That's number one. But the ring is the visible demonstration of their union. Both are necessary, but one is more important than the other. And the same is true with religion and Jesus. In some, Jesus is speaking to us, not just the crowd. And it, he's, look, he's speaking to you and he's speaking to me, whether I'm more aligned towards skepticism and doubt or whether I'm more aligned towards feeling morally superior because I'm dutiful. And he's saying the same thing. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And he's saying the way that you know if you've really heard the word of God is you look at your vision. Are you running towards the things of God? Are you running towards the light? Are you running and are you focused on in an ever-increasing manner, keeping and abiding and living for the things contained in God's word and the things that Jesus tells you? Or are you being fooled? Are you actually following Satan and his influences because it looks nice. It looks like the angel of light. It feels harmless. It feels good. It feels right. And cultures convince me that it is right. You see, he's telling us both, all of us, to look at our vision. What are we focused on? What are we living for? What are we running after in life? And it's asking ourselves, did I hear? Did I really hear what Jesus said? And so the question is, What is this truth that transforms us, that gives us the ability 
to have the strong man that cast out the one before, to have the spirit of God that enables you to run after the things that he values instead of the things that maybe you would naturally value. It's the gospel. It's that mysterious, mind-blowing, really hard to comprehend truth that we talked about earlier. The one that we've been socially conditioned to just recite. It's that. It's the good news of release. That you have been released from all the demons that plagued you. The demons of doubt, the demons of self-righteousness, the demons of the law, the demons of passivity, of arrogance, the demons of selfishness, and most of all, the demons of sin and death itself. You see, the demonic seeks to lead you towards destruction and away from God. And the gospel seeks to lead you towards beauty and to life. And when you hear the gospel, when you really hear it with ears of faith, it directs your vision at that which matters, towards the things of God, towards light, and away from the things that you once chased after. And so I think there's two questions that we have to ask ourselves, and the first one is the most important. It's actually the most important question that you could ever ask yourself in your entire life. Have you been transformed by this truth? Do you really believe the gospel? Have you really heard it? And the thing is that we can't allow our culture and its priorities and its influence and its inflation of seeing is believing to keep us from hearing Christ and from finding forgiveness and from finding release. And so if that's you here, if you're resonating with that and you feel like that's where you're at, after the service, I'm going to be up here, the other pastors, as well as our prayer team, come up and talk with us. Whether or not you want to know what it means to believe and trust in Christ, what it means to really hear the gospel, or whether you just have questions and you have doubts and need somebody to talk to, come up here. That's why we're here. That's why the church is here. To lead people to a place where they can really hear Christ and then live for him. And if you're here and you're a Christian, and you said, yes, Jesus has released me, Well, then we have a hard question to ask. What's your vision focused on? Are you being influenced and deceived to believe that lies are actually true? Are you running after things that are dark and destructive and sensing that they're good and harmless? So here's a really hard challenge for all of us. And this is really hard. This week, Whether it's today, whether it's before work or after work, or whether it's in time of personal worship, I want you to do something seems like impossible. Turn your phone off first. Second, find a place that is completely quiet. No one can distract you. No music. No people can knock on the door. You can block out a period of time in this place and sit down, take a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper or a notebook and simply pray this. God, By your spirit, please show me right now the things that I'm believing to be true that are in fact lies. Where is my vision off? What am I running towards that is dark and destructive? God, show me where I need to redirect my vision towards beauty and to life and to your ways because I want to hear the word of God and I want to keep it. And then sit in solitude and write down whatever God puts to mind. It sounds... Mysterious. 
But God in his spirit is mysterious, and he does, in fact, grant those things when we ask. So sit and write those things down. If you're like me, it's going to probably be a bunch of pages. You're just like, oh my God, come on, really? And then I want you to take the piece of paper. I want you to look at it. I want you to read through it. You're going to keep flipping. It's going to be a lot. And then you're going to say, I've been released from all these things. I've been freed from every one of these influences. And how beautiful and amazing is that? And guess what? I've also been freed to run after changing these things. Because I have the strong man inside of me, because I have God's spirit inside of me, I actually have the capability by God's grace to redirect my vision, to change the path towards destruction, towards a path of beauty in life and say, God, just give me the ability by your grace to help do that. Because your vision shows you and reveals to you if you really heard. And the people of God are a people that continue to seek to run after the light and to redirect their vision towards his ways and his kingdom and not our own. So have you been transformed by this truth and what is your vision focused on? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. Lord, you are so gracious with us. We so easily consume every other spirit in the world except you. And yet you love us and you forgive us and you're patient. So God, this week, may you grant us the gift of really realizing and seeing the ways in which we're walking towards darkness, whether or not we know it or whether or not it it seems like an angel of light. And give us the grace and the strength to redirect our vision by your spirit to run towards the things that bring beauty in life, not destruction, to live as people of light. And God, for those of us in this room that are doubting and skeptical and unsure of your claims and your authority, God, give your spirit. Help us and help those in this room to see that culture isn't right, that seeing isn't believing, But God, you are the sign and you are here and you are welcoming everyone that is looking for release and for forgiveness and for freedom. So God, thank you for your grace and your love. And this time this morning to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.